Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is X Job Downloaded. And today I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing one of my first detective sergeants and one of my bosses, Ray Berman. Been retired 17 years, Ray. Yeah. I'm aiming to do the next 13, so I'll make 30. Yeah, good for <laughs> you, mate. And I and I really hope you do. You, you've had an interesting life. You joined the police in 1976 and you saw the, the good and the bad in, in policing at that time. But where did it all begin for Ray Berman? Where were you born? Um, you know, what was your family about? Yeah, well, um, Dad was a Welshman who won a a scholarship. He was a, one of um, an orphan, one of five orphans, uh, boys all brought up um, in Wales. And um, he won a scholarship uh, to study uh, uh, in London, where he met Mum, he was a lodger at, at Grandma's house. Uh, so that's so Mum was was obviously uh, a Londoner. Dad was a Welshman. Uh, he served in the war, of course, uh, as that whole generation did, World War Two. Um, and he then came back and was like a tram driver, a postman. Um, so and we, I was brought up in a council house. The mo- so as a child, I was brought up at Harold Hill. Oh, okay, which. Comes to the story, as winded up as, yeah. as, as uh, finishing my job, but um, so yeah, council house, um, secondary modern school, pretty much that stuff, um, and then uh, elder sister and elder brother. Um, it, you know, everybody was poured in. Everybody yeah. had the outside toilet. You know, it was just the way it was. Um, and then uh, and I started working as soon as I could in uh, in the city of London, um, and then uh, in the summer of seventy six. Uh, decided I was going to drop out, opt out of, of the of the commuting life. Good job, really good job. I was a broker at Lloyd's for for a marine broker for ships. Yep. And uh, and seventy six, um, and I never forget it. I was sitting. I had a corner office in my lovely uh, office, and I looked out and I saw a Bobby walking, which I now know would have been out of Bishopsgate. A Bobby walking the beat, and I thought that's what I'm going to do. So I got off the train that night, went to the police station, said, how'd you join? And they gave me a form and, you know, the rest is history. So that's how I joined. Of course, just remind people, 76, the wages were not good. No, they weren't good. Uh, and, um, you know, the uh, uh, we then had a pay rise of 40%, but 20% to 20%. So it just shows how bad they were. And and to put that into context, that's what the, the police service are currently undergoing, you know, with, with the, the, the paying conditions. And... My dad left the police in '75 because the pay was so bad. A milkman was earning more yeah. than, a, than a cop, and they were bad old days because you could see, you know, and it's well documented the corruption that was going on in some forces was because the money was so poor Absolutely. and they had to make ends Absolutely. meet. Absolutely. And I'm not condoning it, Ray, but but, no. but you can see why why. It yeah, happened. I mean, I can remember um, lots of TV coverage uh, about. Uh, cops whose children were on free school meals, you know, and mm. you know, and it really was. I, I remember guys leaving with sort of 12, 15 years in, 
yeah. you know, bobbies, who were then going to go and work on the gate security at Dagenham, at yeah. Car, you know, at the Ford's place. Ford's, yeah. But, um, I, 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 you know, a bit like this is what I'm doing now. You, you know, it wasn't for the money, but I, I must admit, I remember getting my first paycheck thinking, is this the tax? This can't be what I'm meant to live on. Uh, so it was pretty tough. But, but you know, I grabbed all the overtime I could. Yeah. I, you know, we, we all um, – but it, it was in, it was certainly interesting times. But, you know, I, you know when I speak about this to, to people, you know, I remind them I joined Dixon Dot Green. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it was. You know, you walked eight hours a day. You know, you went out on patrol. You walked nights, all that stuff, you know. Um, and, and I think that was a good grounding, but, yeah. I agree because you're actually there – service in the community and I think you know what you're doing now we'll come on to but to to work within the community I think it's often lost that every crime starts in a community it doesn't matter where that community is in the world but it starts in a community and and unless we have those people on the ground doing that community work we're losing so much you know the the prime role of a constable is the prevention before detection Well, to be out there and meet the public, that's where you're carrying out the prevention element. Mm. Where did you start your – where did you go to your first police station? Where, where um, it was uh, H&J divisions, as they were called then. Uh, so I went to uh, Benfleet and Canby, uh, really amazing places. Uh, I, 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 and, of course, you know, I can remember the first time I got in what was called an area car. Yeah. And I remember this guy who was the, like the senior PC who'd been in Suez. You know what I'm saying? He'd been like, <laughs> yeah. So he, and uh, and the sergeant, I stand to attention when the sergeant walked in. You know, oh, that's no. how it was. And and um, and I never forget. We we uh, you know we we were going from you know it's a morbid subject. We were going from sudden death to sudden death because there was a whole generation of women who had lost their boyfriends or their fiancés or their husbands in World War One. And that was the generation that were living around that time, particularly on Gambia Island. Um, a fascinating place, but, yeah. but really good because small numbers, you'd have three or four on a team. Uh, so you really learnt to look after each other. And I had a great sergeant, fantastic sergeant, a guy called John Marshall. But to put, when you think about it, what, 76, we're talking 47 years ago. Oh, crikey, yeah. If you take that back, yeah. you're talking about 1929. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's... That's the reality, and I, I think that when we we regale, you know, the eighties and all that, actually we're further away yeah. now than we were. It, it, it is absolutely bonkers. Yeah. But you went into CID. What was your path like going into? <laughs> well, I don't know if you remember in those days you had you were probationer for two years, and you did like two weeks with traffic, and I enjoyed that. South End traffic were pretty good guys, and I thought, oh, this is pretty interesting. Uh, and then you have a couple of days with O'Connor, but then you had a month with CID. And I, I remember thinking, remember the pay levels? This is a licence to print money. Like, this, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, I want to get on this, you know. <laughs> uh, so, um, and I got my first commendation on, uh, on CID and I loved it. I loved it and thought, I just can't wait to get on soon enough. And then, um, but, but, but having said that, I still love being a Bobby. There was a thing then, I don't know if you remember, but, but the chief, Constable brought in a thing called neighbourhood beat officers. Yeah, it's a ten MBOs, yeah. and I was I was one. I, felt, I think I was the first MBO, but certainly in that division. So I was walking the beat, and because a good MBO or good committee cop gets prisoners. Yeah, absolutely. So I I was detecting crime and writing up crime sheets. Be you know way before. So people noticed me. The DI, I forget the DI noticed me. Come over from Rayleigh and said, "Well, you know, what's all this?" Um, and then. Uh, 
put in for a CID course. They used to do like a local CID course, I think it was three weeks, I can't yeah. remember, to test you at Chelmsford. And again, uh, I remember sitting uh, again in the office of the Detective Chief Super and he said, well, there's no vacancies, you know. And he, and I think he said something like, or somebody said to him, well, apart from the ones at Grace. And I said, yeah, I'll go there. Not, I don't even know what Grace was. No. And, of course, I went there and I thought, I love this place. You know, this is like amazing. Uh, so that's how I went as a DC down in what was the Grace division then. Um, uh, my first detective sergeant was a guy called Brian Sewell. Brian was ex-guardsman, brilliant guy, been off on the RCS, taught me everything. Um, and then from there promoted uh, as, as a, a, a five-plus years in to uniform sergeant at Basildon. So, you know, I've always managed to, you know, fall on my feet. I've had these amazing times, but I love being at Grays. It was just in a really good place to yeah, be. Yeah, Grays is a good place. I've, mm. I've had many happier memories there. Yeah. When you were when you first joined, I assume you didn't have your own house. I did actually. Oh, did you? I did because we because I was commuting, so we had oh. our own house. And I looked at the small print, and the small print said you've got to live in a police house, but it didn't say you had to sell your house. So I, rent- <laughs> so I rented it. So I rented it. Didn't say you had to sell it. No, just said you'd have to live there. <laughs> so I lived in a police house for. Three years, I guess. Then put as you did those, put in for permission to to live in your own house. Sold the house I had, uh, and then bought my first house. Right. And and again, it, it was you know fairly obvious. I thought, hang on, there's this thing called rent allowance. They're going to pay me to live in my own house. Yeah. I'll have some of that. Yeah. You know? So um, uh, uh, so yeah. So um, uh, we bought our first house. Um, uh, but I always remember the police house had mould on the ceilings in our. Uh, my daughter was young then, uh, in the baby's room. I'll never forget that. And it had a cold cold boiler and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, the police service hadn't quite caught up then with the late 70s. Central heating wasn't a thing. And no. it just it, it's So, yeah, it's hard a police house then and, um, uh, and, and and ended up thinking, well, yeah, this is fine. And so CID was was the, the way for me. I absolutely loved it. So you, you go from Grey's Uniform Sergeant where no, Basildon. I went from Grays DC to Basildon on promotion. Yeah, um, first oh, was Barley there then? Alan Charles he Barley. Was, he was my. He was on my team. <laughs> seven six four. Never forget seven six four. I know. Do you know why I remember his collar number? Is because there was a form called a T sixty four, which was about what the area car driver had to fill in about right. what had happened in his eight hours or her eight hours, and he flatly refused to sign it uh, to do one. Do one. So T sixty four. So seven six four. But Alan was there then. But more importantly, I was promoted the same day as a guy called Morris Brazier. Yes, who was on the next team. Nice man, uh, lovely man. And then we were both made detective sergeant, and we worked together as DSs, right. you know, weekends on sort of thing. So yeah, again, great team. And that's when I started. Sort of, I'd been, I'd lost some weight. I'd been marathon running. So I challenged some of the guys to run the London Marathon with me, which we did. And then we went on to run the Berlin Marathon. You know, when the war was there, the West Berlin Marathon. Uh, and that started everybody running, in, and Alan and I um, started the team running in uniform. So we run the London Marathon in uniform, yeah. and, and and the rest is sort of as they say. And um, and it was like uniform with a hat. Oh uh, yeah, white helmet. shirt. If you're a governor, tie. Yeah, I couldn't wait to get promoted because when I got promoted, I could wear a flat hat when I was running. Yeah. A, <laughs> we, we Alan and I even run the, the New York Marathon, in, and of course the the, the the Bobby's thing. If you're running anywhere in a Bobby's uniform. Oh. Collar and tie, epaulets, you know, squeaky trunction. They loved it. They, and the media loved it. We, we oh, were, yeah. You know, we, I know the first time we did it, we were centre page of one of the 
one of the um, tabloids, it might be the Sun or the Mail or whatever, centre page. Um, and of course, we, we did it and raised money for charity. So it was a win-win. And, and that's, I mean, there's a constant theme there because of the community, the charity and, and, and doing the best for other people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that that falls in with policing as well. But oh yeah, I remember coming to the London Marathon. Um, they had like a supporters bus, if you like, because I couldn't I couldn't run a bath. But <laughs> the um, I'm coming watching you lot run. It was absolutely fantastic, and the atmosphere is incredible. And as you say, it buoyed everybody else. You could watch people that were running alongside you when people were cheering you. You could see it buoying everybody else else up, and they were they were getting with it as well. And it's absolutely incredible. When you were at Basildon, there were some interesting characters and interesting days there. And Alan Barley probably sits at the, at the top of that list because his flat refusal to do certain things. You know, he'd write something, you know, watching dog in street rather than what he'd actually done on his duty. But and the, the, you know, the things he did were quite legendary at the time. But you had the likes of Alan Gilling, who was yeah. the, was he the chief super there? He was then? chief super. Um, and interestingly, my wife and I, Victoria and I, were in Cambridge about three years ago. No, I'm back. A little bit before that, I thought I saw Alan Gilling on a push bike in Cambridge. Right. And I thought, that can't be true, right, you know. And I said to Victoria, I said, I th- I'm sure I saw Alan Gilling today. Anyway. We were in Cambridge about three years ago now, and we're walking uh, um, just down by the market there. In fact, we got a coffee, and he comes towards us, and it, and I said, "Blimey, boss, how are you?" And we chat, 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 and he had on a pair of job trousers. And honestly, it's just <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah so, but he was he was he was decades ahead of his time. Of course, oh yeah, he you was. Know, introducing those smoking. and and of course I had the joy of working with him at Chelmsford. But Alan Gillen, not a lot of people realise, I don't think, that Alan Gillen had done all sorts of work with the security services. So when we were going to Berlin, of course, we would have had to have gone through, you know, from Checkpoint Alpha, Bravo, up to Charlie. He came with us because he, you know, he got he opened gates that we could never have opened. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he's still, well, he was in Cambridge recently. He, he spoke fluent Russian. I mean, and Russian, yeah. Absolutely incredible. And he was one of the first people at Brams Hill. And he was, he was absolutely, he was ahead of his, ahead of his time. Yeah. Like ping pong, table tennis, if I remember right. Yeah. Well, when, when we lived, when I was a kid, we lived in a police commune in Colchester. And, there were a whole load of, you know, Peter Jocelyn and a whole host of great people that lived in this in this line of houses. And Alan Gillen lived in one of them as well. So I went to school with his kids and, oh, and so yeah. on and so forth. So, yeah, I'd known him for, for some time well, before I joined. The, the time before I saw him in, Chum- in Cambridge was when I was a DI and we'd done an operation and we went over, I can't remember it was, to some pub. And he was there. He'd retired. Right. And, uh, of course, I... I, I got the impression he was debriefing people after the war was fallen. Right, yeah. That's what I think he was doing. But fascinating man. Yeah, absolutely. Very bright, all for the boys and girls, you know. Oh, yeah. And that's how you learn from those sort of governors. You learn um, uh, it way ahead of his time. Yeah, we had some good ones, John Deal, and all, uh, mm. we had some incredible people. So you've you've gone from Basildon to Chelmsford, CID? Yeah, um, so um, uniform sergeant, then detective sergeant at Baz, Basildon. Uh, working with Morris and, and some really good people. Then Chelmsford, because uh, we moved to Chelmsford as well. Then I was promoted from Chelmsford to back to Basilance, uniform inspector. Yeah. Six weeks in, of course, murder comes in. I'm on night, so 11 o'clock in the morning, get yourself in. 
So I was in, it was a murder of a young fella called Stephen Pell. Uh, so um, so back on the department, working with uh, Ivan Dibley, um, uh, and then uh, then Grays, um, working with Mick Holyoke and Mick Todd, and you know as DI there. Yeah, that was a fairly interesting couple of years. Yeah, I mean it, it, um, uh, Mick Todd's name. It is a, a a constant thread through a lot of the, the because mm. he he touched so many lives. Mm. He was such a, a lovely person, and everybody who mentions him, you know, they regale. I was I interviewed a guy from Nottingham the other week, um, Jonathan Nichols, who's now an author, and he said, "Oh yeah, one of my best governors was a man called Michael Todd." And I was like, he was there as ACC, yeah, yeah, and he was, and he, he said he sat next to him, and they just brought a new computer system in. He didn't know who. Mick was, and he sat next to him. He goes, "What do you think of it?" He says, "Well, I think this is bloody rubbish." And he said, "Oh, go on, then tell me why." And and then at the end of it, he introduced himself as the ACC, and mm-hmm. you know, he was he was very very kind. Well, because he he was he was ended up as assistant commissioner in the Met before he went to Manchester, um, and Scotland. When I was at the at Belgravia, when I was a boss at Belgravia, Scotland Yard was on my patch, right. So of course I, I and I always remember this. We, we were on the fifth floor of the yard, which was the boss's level, and I'm in his office and we're looking out the window. Some something going on there, and he turned to me and he said, "Berman, how on earth did we get here?" And because I, I said, "Well, we can buy lift, mate. We got up the lift." You know, we were, <laughs> but it was it was he was astounded. He was a sister. Yeah. I was not as astounded as I am, you know, because we would be bobbies, you see, yeah. at South End. So um, yeah, no, yeah, he was a lovely guy. man. And I, I'm going to interview a guy called Trevor Hermes who, who did the um, yeah, he did the exchange exchange. Yeah, well, give my best to Trevor. yeah, I will he, do because he, he, he came to Chelmsford. That's right, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love, yeah. He's another lovely guy, and um, he went on to work on the bill. He was yeah. he was the police advisor yeah. on the bill. Yeah, Bethnal Green, he was at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, really nice chap. Um, so you're you're a DI at Basildon. At Grays. At Grays. Yeah. Had you noticed, as you've been promoted, did you change with the promotion or did you ad- adapt to the role? How, how did it affect you as, as, a, as an individual? Yeah, I... I it... it I, I always took I, what I liked actually was when you got inspector, you wore a white shirt and an officer uniform, and it, so it was very distinct. It was a different yeah. move, and it wasn't about being called sir or boss, but you had a different job. Um, the downside of getting promoted is you're no longer doing the business. Even as a DI, I'd go out on operations, but you're not. You're not the same. It changed you in as much as your responsibility. You suddenly got a whole bunch of people rather than when you're a DS, you've got three or four or five. You know. Or you're working on a squad. Um, that changed. The the hardest thing when because when I went to Thurrock, they were the CID were told were being accused of dragging the force down as far as detections were concerned. If you recall, I went there in November '92. Yeah. Um, within eighteen months, we were at the top of the country. But anyway, one of the things that 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 uh, I found was that two things. One is. The, the, the guys wanted to work. The boys and girls wanted to do what they joined up to do. And the system was stopping them. So part of my job was to move the barriers. And I used to say to them, don't, don't worry about money. Don't worry about cars. Don't worry about phones. That's my job. You get out there and get the intelligence. You get out and do the ones. You go out and arrest people. You get the bad guys in, like the scallywags. And that was always my attitude from the moment I got promoted onwards. 
you know, DI, tube inspectors, et cetera, et cetera. That was always my attitude. My job is, was to make sure you could do your job. Yeah. Because um, that's the sort of boss I wanted. Yeah. You know, I, di- I didn't want one to buy me a beer. I didn't want one to be my best mate. I wanted someone that would look after me. And the other thing, of course, is that you suddenly realise you've got, you know, you've got people who've got major problems. You, and, you you know, and there's nowhere for them to go. And you had to step in and help them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely right. That, that social side of being a or the social worker side of being a governor, mm. you really have to be able to listen. And if you've got 50 people that work for you and they want to talk to you, you've got to give them that yeah. time. They deserve it because they've got the pressures at home with the families and, mm. and they're going through exactly the same things as as we've been through, relationships, the whole lot. Mm. So you can impart some of your good practice or experiences mm. On them, and they do deserve that that time. I, I think also I, I'd been there a little while, not long before I I got some credibility. Yeah, and and once you got that, but, but particularly on the department, I felt once you got credibility as a DI, they 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 would literally run through brick walls for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and but that's also um, uh, you know you you got to pace them because you know they'll burn out if you're not careful. Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it, but I loved it, and of course then. We had a documentary on us and all this sort of stuff. I, I mean, remember it, that. It was just, it was just, it was just an and Operation I, Rolling Thunder. And 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 I went to. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I would point out there. People said, "Oh, you're." They were actually record titles by Bob Dylan. Were they? But everybody thought we were making them up because because <laughs> the media liked them. No, they were, you know, passed over Rolling Thunder, Morning Glory. They were all Bob Dylan titles. Bob Dylan songs. They were all tracks off Bob Dylan. Well, albums. I never. But that's why we picked them. But. And of course, I went to Australia for three months. Yes, you did. There. So again, just was fought. that on the Fulbright Fellowship? No, no, that was an exchange. Wow! They sent an inspector over, and I went over to Sydney for three months, and that was a pretty tough posting. I've got to tell you, being in Sydney in a hotel for three months it was, it was tough. <laughs> so I, I got, I, you know, they, they, I got nothing but almost now I look back rose tinted glasses, but I've got nothing but great memories working with amazing people yeah. who, when I see what they've done now, they've, they're out of the job, you know, now they've left, the, you know, they're retired, are doing, still doing amazing stuff. Yeah, they you are. Know, just and that's people. why we do what we do with this yeah, because it just, it spreads the word, you know. People need to understand that all the negativity around policing at the moment, it, it, there are some justifications, of course there are, but you're talking about a minority of people that let the team down. And we all have that. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're in, somebody will always let you down. But the problem is we've got the integrity, your your book on there, you know, men with integrity. We've got the integrity that the public deserve. When when I used to meet, um, uh, every month I'd get about 25 plus, you know, basically probationers starting, but certainly new people starting at the borough when I was a boss um, uh, in the Met. And I would say to them, I'd say, put your hand up if you was born in 19, or you was alive in 1976. And not many hands would go up. No. Said, well, that's when I started. And I, said, I used to say to them, and this, this wasn't being over-emotional, I say, every time you go out there and you're rude to somebody, every time you go out there and you make a racist comment, every time you're out there and you overdo it, and, and you physically you're, you're too, every time you, you do that, you're not only ruining your reputation, you're ruining my reputation. Yeah, exactly. And I've had 20 plus, nearly 30 years of this. And that, that, that was the only way I could get them to understand. Every time you do something wrong, you tarnish the entire yep. policing world. Yep. And it's um, – and, and I'm, you know, I'm at the loop now completely. But, but 
integrity was everything. Integrity was everything. And, you know, um, and when I, again, I joined Dixon Dot Green Days in 76. Yep. There was some problems, you know. But, you know, I left, when I left in 2006, I left behind um, what I considered to be the most dedicated, hardworking cops I'd ever worked with. Yeah. You know, hugely honourable. Um, and, and you know, and I can only think that they're carrying on doing that job, you know, 17 years later. And I think that they probably are. And I think, as I say, the vast majority that, that they get down in the dumps like everyone else. We all had it, didn't we? Mm. There was some oh, point yeah. in everybody's career say, I've had enough of this. And then you think, well, actually, I can retire in X amount of years. Mm. And, and the, the pension hook was always in you. But the fact is that these great people are still doing a great job. They are. It's just they're just doing it in a different way, and and it, it's frustrating as a member of the public. Now it, it becomes frustrating, but actually you do get it because when my dad joined in '67, there was somebody that was leaving who had been there for 30 mm. years. You know, mm. joined in 1937, probably went off to the war, and then and they were yeah. looking forward to their 30 years of pension. So it is. Um, when I joined, there were people telling me that the job wasn't what it was when they joined. Exactly. And when I left, I thought the job's not what it was when I joined. No. And it will ever be. Um, but but what I think we discount at, at our peril is people who join an organisation where you're going to do shift work, where you're going to put yourself in harm's way to protect the public. Yeah. That's what they're doing. Yeah. You know, they've not all got office jobs. No. They're out there, for, you know, 24-7. Yeah, absolutely. Fighting right. the fight. And, and we forget that at our peril, that young men and women are putting themselves in harm's way. Yeah, they are. You know, and, and, uh, and we should be hugely proud of them for mm. doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So you, you're, uh, you, you, you go on to be the Chief Inspector at Braintree, where, where our paths crossed again. Yeah, you were, yeah. I, was, I was over there. And you made the decision to move on to where did, did you go to Nottinghamshire from from there no i um i was offered a job as as uh, superintendent detective superintendent at nottingham right i didn't take it but 9 months later uh i was accepted for the met right uh in fact he was talking about um dick mason dick mason and i both went up for this sort of awareness day thing you know uh and uh <laughs> again Got through the process. I mean, it, it was a, you know, after a whole day of this assessment process, my brain was like porridge, you know. Yeah. But I, I, I never forget, I came out of Regent Street and I, 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 I could have walked under a bus. It was, my brain was gone, thinking this can't be what it's like. And my first day, because I was, I was promoted to Belgravia, Buckingham Palace Road, Lovely. SW1. Mate, you do not get a better address on your credit, on no. your business card. <laughs> so so there I am. And the first day was like that. It was just manic. Yeah. So, yeah, so I went to uh, to, to Belgravia. Again, uh, you know, a place that was seen from the, from, the, from the boys and girls' point of view as the boss's transit camp. They'd go there for six, nine months and move on. And I was there three years. And when I left, again, nothing to do with me. But because they were great people that just needed that leadership, um, they were phenomenally uh, performing, phenomenally. Um, but it, it was difficult because, one, I'm having to commute to begin with. Yeah. And, two, I go into an organisation thinking it would be the same as, as the one I just left, and, of course, it wasn't. You know, policing's policing, but the forms and the systems and the computers, that was all very different. Fell on my feet because my number two was a public order guy um, uh, and uh, – 
he was phenomenal, Joe Wadsworth. Uh, uh, and again, it, I had, I, and because there were a couple of murder squads there, and Hammett's they're called, and uh, a Boa CID. Um, but I did, you know, I sat there looking out on the Thames, thinking Buckingham Palace is like at the end of this road, and you know, uh, you know, I got the embassies, yeah. and, you know, and there's the Albert Hall, that's mine, and you know, so it, it was a bit of a hell of a posting. Yeah, lovely. Loved it. Loved every minute of it. Um, uh, and the reason I loved it was, I mean, my first day there. Um, Expo blew up a cab, <laughs> you know, a black cab. Um, we had a, 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 a woman uh, bound and gagged, washed up on the Thames, murdered. We had a guy shot in the head. Uh, luckily, the round went through and came out of his mouth, so he didn't die. You know, it was that was the sort of place I was in. Yeah. And you either got up to speed or you didn't. And luckily, I had good people around me. Um, and uh, it, it was fantastic. And of course, Westminster is Westminster. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, from some people's point of view, it's the centre of the world. Um, so that was very interesting. You know, the political side of it came oh, out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, um, and um, within three weeks, I'd come up with a strap line saying we're going to be the best in the Met, whatever it is, whether it's cleaning, whether it's, de- you know, reducing crime, whether it's, you know, no sickness, whether it's, whatever it's going to be, welfare, whatever it's going to be, we're going to be the best in the Met. And three years later, they were, you know. And, and you know, remember, uh, 9-11 come along, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, uh, and people are sleeping in the corridors because, like, they're doing 14, 15-hour shifts. Yeah. These are the people I work with. Now, I sleep in my office because I'd have an ensuite and a camp bed. These people were curling up, you know, yeah. in the corridors, yeah. sleeping because they want to do the job. Hugely dedicated cops yeah. I had, you know, men and women that just hugely dedicated. So... Um, and it was a joy to be with them. And, you know, some of them still hit me up on Facebook and stuff, Brilliant. you know, WhatsApp. Um, and I left there and went to Havering because I was, I realised I was, you know, getting near to the to the finish, as it were. Yeah. Um, and did my last couple of years at Havering. Uh, again, with great people. Some of the, the DCIs and the DIs who I worked at Havering with, we meet up every three months. We, oh, call, it, we call ourselves the Coffee Boys. So talk about it used to be drinking in Bethnal Green. Now it's Coffee Boys and we meet at Starbucks or whatever. And we just moan about the world. And So, yeah, we're still meeting. In fact, I'm meeting them next week. Oh, yeah. So, and we've met every sort of three or four months. Oh, brilliant. In, for, you know, since 17 years. It's, it's, it's funny because you do, I mean, I... I Ended up running the, the CID along the West LPA, and I got to meet so many Met chief inspectors. It was it was brilliant, and like you say, social media, Stan Bowles, all you know, Tony Bennett, all the people that I'd, I'd worked with across the borders. I haven't seen them for years, but we we maintain that yeah. sort of social link. When you finished um, at Belgravia, and and for those people listening, Belgravia is. Probably one of the richest places in yeah in it, London. It, it, you, you've got obviously you know the, the very wealthy areas. You know what, you know one of my residents was you know Margaret Thatcher, Baroness yeah. Thatcher. You know you've got very wealthy areas. Of course, you go right up to Parliament. You take um, I was just I've got I've got Her Majesty's back garden, but you know you take a bit of Buck Palace. You take the embassies. You take the Albert Hall. You know you've got all that plus the the, the military. And and you know don't forget we still had a lot of local terrorism yeah. going on. But then you go down to, which I loved, Pimlico, which came alive at the weekends. Yes. Was my other four counterparts, you know, West End Central, et cetera, Paddington, theirs died at the weekend. My place came alive at the weekend because yeah. it's a village. Yeah. And we had down to Churchill Gardens where you had, you know, um, you know, 
council blocks. Yeah. So I did, you know, and I had local bobbies. I had bobbies who walked the beat who were out there all the time. Yeah. So it's it was an amazing place. Uh, and Victoria Railway Station, of course, and Coach Station. So. And that brings its own problems because, you, yeah. you know, you've got your, your drifters, your, your homeless. So you've got the haves and have not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably in equal measure. Yeah. Um, but there are some more overt have-nots because of the rough sleepers. And I, I remember a, um, a morning meeting one morning. One of these things I said to me, oh, there was a, a death last night. A local doctor reversed her Range Rover out of a garage over what she thought was a pile of rags. It was homeless. So afterwards I was thinking, well, how many homeless have we got? Mm. How many people are living rough? Um, started to work at that and ended up working with um, Louise Casey, who Tony Blair had appointed as the, the you know, the media called the Rough Sleeping Czar. Amazing lady, amazing, powerful woman, very dedicated. So I worked with her uh, and her team um, in the end across the the, um, the five um, Westminster, you know, the whole of Westminster. Um, because it was a very complex problem, people sleeping rough, people with drug addiction, people with alcohol problems, you know, all that sort of thing. And that's when I, I really started to think, you know, this 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 is a this is this is a social issue. Yeah, it not, is. You know, not the Vagrancy Act. This is a social issue. Um, and uh, we set up um, a unit which was multi-agency. It was the first true, and I was proud of the boys and girls who worked on that because the cops really got up with his relationship with the social workers. And we were getting people back into lifestyles. Yeah. And and I was very proud of them there. They were fantastic people. Um, and and that sort of opened up your eyes as to what was going on below the radar. Oh, you yeah, know, that they were, there wasn't the crime stats. That was a different thing. Um, and uh, so, I, again, just very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And a lot of people don't realise that the Vagrancy Act actually came in to deal with the soldiers that were coming back from yeah, the yeah. Napoleonic Wars. Mm. So, And they're still using that legislation today. And I, I find that quite incredible that we've moved on in society, but we're still relating to a, a law that came in in the mm. 1800s. Mm. That doesn't really make sense. But So how did you feel? When you've, when you've handed in your warrant card, you've... you've Driven off from Romford, how did you feel? Yeah, first of all, we it was going to be a summer, so I made sure I'd be tired in the summer because they owed me a fair bit of time. Um, and then we decided, well, we're, we're going to we're going to move. It took us a couple of years to find where we are now. Um, the house we were in was built in fifteen ninety seven, so it's Elizabeth the first. Right, it wasn't a big place, but it was beautiful. My, yeah. my, my wife is very good at decorating homes and making the house a home. Uh, but I did promise her that we'd have a new place. So this one is 1800. So that's as, that's as new as <laughs> we're going to It's beautiful, get. by the way. We, yeah. So we, we found this place. We'd, we'd looked all over. But and, and why we like this, I decided then I was going to probably go back and study again and go back to Cambridge to study. Because you'd already had a degree at this point. I had a degree and a master's. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did a, 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 a degree and a master's and, and, a, and some other stuff. But, so, but, but I decided I wanted to go back and study what I wanted to study. Um, and... Uh, so we looked at this place, and this is really, apart from that, it's beautiful. It's the Suffolk-Norfolk border. It's it's the countryside is amazing. Yeah. You know, you've got, we're, we're set for forest down the road, et cetera. We're equidistant to Norwich, Bury St. Edmunds, Cambridge. So we can get to the theatre still. We can go out for lunch, and we can go to places. Yeah. So, so it's a good place to live, and it's a lovely place to live. So we moved here um, a couple of years after I retired. Um, then I... Uh, uh, by this by this time, uh, I believe God had called me, 
Um, what's Shane saying? That sort of thing. Because you know, he didn't actually send me a WhatsApp, but, uh, <laughs> but but he certainly called me. And it had been many years. But why, Ray? Why? Why had why had God called you? What was what I was no idea. your epiphany? I know. Well, I, I think God's got a sense of humour. Otherwise, he wouldn't have called me. Because you know, it's it's. Looking back now, I'm a great believer in reflection. What we used to call debriefing, yep. you know, a, a proper good debrief. Only what are, what is called theological reflection. So you, you debrief, but you debrief in prayer and in silence and in and in what we call dwelling in the Word in the Bible. You know, so you, you reflect from a different um, microscope. But um, I. The, the, I think looking back, I probably was being called before, but I just wasn't listening. I'm, I was never brought up a Christian, never baptised, family didn't go to church. It just wasn't on the agenda. And it was only in the police service or, you know, Remembrance Parade or something like yeah. that. Although I always made sure I had chaplains. And the chaplain at, at, at Haverhill Borough, Romford, was a, a lovely young man from the East London Mission. Never forget, he'd, he'd come up onto the floor and he'd pop his head in and, and I'd say, oh, yeah, lovely, I'd love to see you again. You know, HR's down the road and sort of push him out of the office. God, yeah. I didn't want to know him. You know. He came in one day and he gave me this. He said, I've got a present for you. So, oh, yeah, cheers, mate. He said, it's a Bible. I said, oh, lovely, just what I need. Thinking, I'm never going to swear any warrants. What do I want a Bible for? And he gave it to me and I put it in the drawer and forgot it. It's called A Bible for Men of Integrity. It's an American Bible. Forgot it. That very book. That very one. As you can see, it's it's a bit. Yeah. It's been a, it's used. been well read. Anyway, so uh, forgot it. So that was the sort of the backstory. Uh, we did some work in Sri Lanka, uh, which at the time was we'd had the the civil war. It was a it was a peace, but you had the north south and you know the Tamils up in the yeah. north, and there were people in the camps who'd been displaced for in into the um, refugee camps for twenty odd years, twenty five years. But their land was still there. So we did an initiative along with lots of other people where we got some money together and we decided we were going to build these homes, put, put them back in the homes. So we, and we did over a period of time. But I would go up country with with, uh, with members of my Rotary Club, for, you know, fundraisers and that, and go up into the north. We were, you know, they let us in because they knew what we were doing good for the community and put, we built these homes. Vicky would come and, you know, we'd do all that stuff. Um, and, and, one of the last, almost probably the last time I went, I'd come back down from up country to Colombo, have a couple of days in a decent hotel, you know, shower, get some rest, and then come home. And I was in this hotel room, and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, I might go for a beer, might meet the guys, bloody, bloody, blah, you know, because we was there was a few of us there, and uh, I just had this overwhelming urge to go to church. It just hit me to the point where. I actually was looking at, you know, in the bedside table, they have yellow pages, yeah. as they did. I'm looking up the word church in the bedside. T- and then I think, well, what are you doing? Uh, oh, this is it's because it's like it's a very spiritual place. You know, there's Buddhists and there's Hindus. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's very, oh, forget it, but what's the matter with you? Go and have a beer. So off we went. And, and I put it to the back of my brain. And it kept coming to the front of my brain. Bear in mind, I'm working at this stage. I'm in the job. Kept coming to the front of my brain. I kept putting it off. And this went on for quite a quite a while, like years. And then one day I, I was walking in where we lived in Tiptree, and there's a lovely old Victorian church called St Luke's. And there's the the minister's name and telephone number. Never forget him, Reverend Martin Fletcher, telephone number. And I wrote it down. And I rang it, and I got the answer phone. I put the phone down, you know. And, 
And then I rang it again some days later, got the answer phone, put the phone down. And eventually I rang and he answered it. So I said, uh, typical job, you know. I said, look, I, I don't know anything about this church business, you know. What, I, what have I got to call you? Grace, you know, you know, vicar, what do I call you? He said, well, my name's Martin. Why don't you call me Martin? Okay, Martin, you don't know me. I'm very blah, 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 blah. How would you go to church? As it work? Why do I feel that I need to go? He said, I'll tell you what you want to do. Come in, come in, come into the church and just sit in the pew and see what happens. So days went past. And I thought, only idiots go to church, you know, like people don't wear socks with their sandals, you know, that, that's my perception. <laughs> so I go and I sit in the church. I just go and sit in the pew, very lovely Victorian church. Can't go and just sit there, nobody in there. And and Paul, I've got to tell you, it was it was as if I've never felt it. Well, I feel it since. It was as if I was just made complete. It was as if the crude way I described it at the time was, you know, like when kids are like little kids here, you could buy them the jigsaw puzzle with the big with the big jigsaw bits, yeah? yeah? It was as if the last bit had been put into place. It, it, they put, it had just been put into place. And I just felt, even now I can feel it, I just felt complete at ease. So I talked to God. I said, okay, if this is what you want me to do, what, what, what am I meant to be doing? How does this work? What do you want me to do? A little while later, because I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to put a collar and tie on and go to Sunday. You know, it's not going to happen. Uh, and I bump into Martin Fletcher, really good guy. Uh, and I said, look, I, you know, I'm the guy who spoke to you. And he said, yeah, he said. So I said, how does, how does it work? What do I do? He said to me, have you got a Bible? And I said, no. Oh, hang on. Yes, I have. Because they boxed up my office and shipped it to home. I said, actually, I think I have. I think I think I have. I said, what, should I read the Bible? Should I start the Bible then? He said, well, look, you're in St. Luke's. Go home, get your Bible, read St. Luke's, and then come back and see me. And that's exactly what I did. It's here. Did your homework. So, but I did what I voiced it up. I found it. Now, Vicky doesn't know any of this is going on. And I get St. Luke's, I start reading it, and I get a pen, red pen, and I get a, a ruler. What I do is underline words right in the margin. And there's a lovely bit in it where, um, what we call Pentecost, you know, in the upper room, where the Spirit descends on the disciples, and they start to speak in different languages. Ironically, last November, I was in that very room in the Holy Land, and people were speaking in different languages, tourists. But anyway, so I underline that, and it goes on to say, they must be drunk. And the modern version says, no, no, they can't be drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And I wrote in the margin, they've never been in a CID office. Because <laughs> I, I know people who are drunk at nine o'clock. <laughs> and that's probably always been my take on, on interpreting the Bible. Yeah. So I go back and, and you know, and so I start reading the Bible. And and, uh, and it, it, it's, uh, and so it, it's been a, an amazing journey. And, and I can remember here, I was going to church here where we live, Sunday morning, and, and there was this whole thing about, you know, we think you should be ordained, we think you should be licensed as a layman. And, I, and I'm walking to, to church and I said to God, look, I know I'm not meant to ask for signs and stuff, but what do you want me to do? What on earth do you want me to do? And the preacher got up and she said, I'm, I'm not going to read my sermon, so I feel I need to talk to you about being servants of God and being licensed or ordained in the church. And afterwards I said, why would you do that? She said, I don't know. Now, people say, ah, it's a coincidence. 
Well, it's funny. The more I pray, the more coincidences there are in life. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I was then baptised in uh, 11th of November 2007. I don't know. I don't, you know, it is a significant date, of course, but I don't remember that. I just remember being baptised by Martin. And then I was what they call confirmed uh, by, he's uh, now the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he was the Bishop of, of, of uh, Chelmsford then. We moved here. After a while, the, the vicar at the churches I'm now at uh, said to me, I really feel that you're being called to preach. Um, I'd like to put you, nominate you for what they call a licensed lay minister. Uh, so I went forward, I was trained. And um, meanwhile, I didn't go back to Cambridge and do an, a master's in theology. Uh, and so I'm now a licensed lay minister. So I get, you know, I get to wear some gowns, but, but of course I'm not ordained. So I can't, right. so I can't, I can't put, I can't do, I can't preside at the sacraments, marriage, baptism, Holy Communion, you know, the sacraments that, that the church says only an ordained priest could do. I can, I can still do other stuff. I can do sermons and yeah. I can do services, what I call service of the word. And then a lovely, lovely vicar, um, Linda Church, funny enough, she's, I bump into her at Ely and she says, you are being called to be ordained. And I said, I'm too old. I'm an old guy. You know, I've retired. I don't want to do all this. You are being called. And they were starting a scheme. I think, I could be wrong, but I think it was the first one in the Church of England where even though you retired, you could go forward for ordination. Huge process, like massive process and a good process. You know, leaves the police service standing when it comes yeah. to trying to sort this out. And I go through the process and uh, and I come out at the end of it and they say, not only are you ordained, you're what we call a pioneer. You're, you know, God's calling you to start churches. Oh, okay then. So I I was all, I was ordained at Ely Cathedral um, a few years now, a couple of, three three years ago. And I'm ordained as what they call a um, a mixed ecology. So I, I do all the, the Sunday stuff and yep. I do the weddings and the funerals and the, and the baptisms. Um, Actually, around it, it tends to be baptisms then weddings, not the other way around. But <laughs> that's what we do, and um, and also I'm I'm a pioneer. I'm, I'm nationally so. And here's the thing: I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to be promoted. I don't want to be anything You've done else. Done that, right? This is what God wants me to do. Uh, Have you got your own parish? I, I've got. Well, I'm myself and another guy who's a retired. GP, a doctor, right? Always handy if you're not feeling well. Yeah, we we work together. Really good guys. We get on really well. He comes from what I would call a, a high church background. He comes from cathedral background. Yeah, brilliant singer, which is good because you have to sing certain bits. So yeah. I get him to do that. I come from uh, a, 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 um, an evangelical background, I guess you'd call it. Although I'm I'm probably more high church now. So we have eight parishes between us. Right. Neither of us are paid. Neither of us get paid. Right. We're, we're, we're known as non-stipendary ordained ministry, okay. which means we ain't going to pay you, which is fine. We don't. We both. Okay. So we have eight parishes. I I guess I, I mainline on two, although I cover the others. One is probably the largest. Um, it's St. George's at Methwold. Services at 9.30 Sunday morning. Coffee mornings every other Tuesday. Um, where we get over 100 people turn up. Fantastic. Uh, and the congregation is growing. Good. Which is amazing. Uh, and I've got an amazing group of people. They, they call it the PCC, the parochial, per, Parish Parochial Council, you know, the church council. That, If you like, the church elders that run the show. Worry, I don't have to worry about leaky roofs or lead or anything. They do it all for me. 
So that's one. And the other church I've got, and that's Victorian church, goes back a long way. We've got a crusader buried there. Wow. But 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 the main bit of the building is is Victorian. No pews. They took the pews out of our probably a hundred years ago now. Really? So and we, so we use it for coffee mornings. We use it for workshops. We use it. You know, it's brilliant. fantastic. The other church, which is a tiny little church, St Andrews at Barton Bendis, do visit it. It's open every yeah, day. No, I will. It's got box pews built in 1632. Wow. Tiny little church. And, of course, there I have Celtic services, candlelit services. We've actually got a village of 200 people. We've got a choir. We have nine or ten in a choir. Brilliant. And we'll have, you know, 20, 30 turn up. And there, of course, that's where I reintroduced the Remembrance Sunday as well. Good. So, yeah, and, and, I, and I cover other churches, but they're the two main ones. What do you think your dad would say now? I mean, he, he was probably immensely proud when you joined the police. Was your dad still with us when you joined the police in yeah, 76? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mum and dad were there. What, um, what, would, what do you think that they would say now? This is the boy that brought up in metropolitan Essex, yeah, yeah. right on the borders of East East London, effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think they'd say? I, I <laughs> When I look back at what I've been allowed to achieve and do, and, and I've been allowed, and I mean that, I've been allowed to achieve and do for, for a number of reasons. One is because I've got the most amazing wife, you know. I mean, can you imagine saying, um, when you retire, darling, I'm never going to work another Christmas. Isn't that great? <laughs> you know, guess what? I do Christmas. At Easter. At Easter, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't get paid double time either. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Chris Adley sends me a WhatsApp occasionally saying, you get double time for this. <laughs> no, I'm not. But so I, and, I, and of course, I'm surrounded by good people. And that's always been the, the thing. What I love about the church, and of course, I, I work on the base, you know, with the with the American Air Force. What I love about it is there's no jealousy. There's no, you know, if you, if you've done well, good oh, yeah, but you know. But to sit down, I I, I got asked. Um, obviously, there's confidentiality. Um, we we don't do one to one confessions like the Catholic Church. No, but but people want to talk to you. And I got asked would I, by a member of my congregation. Um, would I go and meet, uh, speak to the, the couple, husband and wife? Three hours I was with them, and they're going to go some pain, real pain. Um, and the advice I gave them wasn't the police advice. Well, what you need to do is seriously, uh, blah, blah blah. What I said to them was, you've got to let go of this. You've got to give it to God. You've got to forgive. You've got to give this to God. You've got to put it in His hands, and you've got to pray for it. You've got, you've got to ask Him to sort this. Now, you wouldn't have heard Ray Berman ever say that. So no. I think So I think my father would be a little bit surprised to hear me say things like that. Um, but I, I think he, I think he would love the fact that the the, the peace, you know, part, part of the service, you know, I, you know, Holy Communion service, Eucharist service, is 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 you say you say words like you know Jesus stood among you know the risen Jesus stood with his disciples and he said words like you know I'm going to give you my peace. Not as man's peace. This is my peace I'm giving you. And then we say, you know, everybody welcome each other, you know, you know, and, and we pre-COVID we'd hug and yeah. now we just wave at each other. But that peace that Christ can give you when you allow Christ into your heart and you truly accept Christ as your saviour, that peace you won't know any other way. You can have the and I've had it, I've had the flashes cars. I've had the you know the best suits. I've had all the toys I've ever had. I've had lots of money, but the peace you get, and I say this to people: I didn't need it. 
I haven't got a crutch. I'm not, a, you know, the classic guy is a drug addict or he's got a problem or, yeah. you know, it's, it's a crutch. No, I've got a wonderful life. Thank you, God. Yes. And and if anything, I could do without sometimes on a Sunday morning thinking or Monday thinking I've got to write a sermon for next Sunday because I still give sermons, you know. But the peace you get to it. So, yes, it's a bit like being the policeman, you know, that sense of vocation of helping people. One of the joys is when when you when people say to you, you know, would you preside at dad's funeral or mum's funeral, mm. you know, daughter's funeral, whatever. You'd think it would be bad, but actually to walk alongside someone um, when they're at that very low period yeah. is the greatest joy. All right, who doesn't love a wedding or a baptism, you know, yee-haw. But that's the real time when, you, you know, as a priest you earn your money. Although I don't get paid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the time you earn your bucks. That's the time when, you, you know, you're there for them. So those moments are phenomenal. Those yeah. moments are truly phenomenal. And just sometimes, you know, the, the, the barrier between earth and heaven gets really thin. Uh, you know, what the Celts called the thin places, the thin curves. And when it gets thin, it's just the most amazing experience. Do you think as you get older, you, you start to face your mortality more? So you mm. start to have that greater level of connection with stuff that you wouldn't have connected with when you were when you were a young detective sergeant uh, yeah i i don't know I, I as i said earlier on you know when i look back i now see times you know christ called it you know listen to that small voice that silent voice when i look back it, it was there i just didn't recognize it for what it was uh, and, and in a way i wished i had mm. um but um, no, it, it's, it isn't a, it isn't, faith isn't something, oh, well, I'm going to die. I better start praying, make sure I'm okay with heaven. Because that isn't the case. Because I'm pretty sure St. Peter's going to ask me about 30 years of policing when I get there. Maybe. I think there might be one or two questions. But, but I'm rather hoping Jesus will say, no, okay, you can come in right. there. Yeah, come in. <laughs> but no, it, it is, it's, it's not about that. And it's not about, in, in Luke, I, you know, I'm not quite, in, in the Gospel of Luke, it, you know, it, it says something like, you know, he, meaning he and she, you know, he who has received much, much is expected. Now, you can interpret that as, well, you know, if you're going to get to heaven, they've got a big book. No, here on earth, yeah. if you've received much, you must give back. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've, you've had that joy, you've had that, whether you're a Christian or not. And, of course, the Dalai Lama said, there are many, when asked about, well, which is the true faith, he said, I think I might in quoting him, that there are many paths to the top of the mountain. And I believe that. You know, the one God that I worship is the same God that, that Muslims worship and Jews worship. Yeah. You know, Jesus was a Jew. You know, he was a practicing Jew. He was a rabbi. So I don't see a segregation. What I see is, I mean, look at what some of the Sikh temples do to oh, feed the amazing. poor, you know. Amazing. You know, who didn't come into their own in the, in, in the COVID times, oh, you know? know. So faith to me isn't isn't about, well, you know, um, you're going to get into heaven. Um, but I do believe, I truly believe in my heart, that everybody, including you, will see the face of God. Possibly the difference between me and others is I'm sort of running about looking for it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, you know. But we all get to see the face of God. Right. We all, because I believe God is a loving God. Um, and, and you know, sometimes people say, you know, my dad committed suicide or whatever, my mum committed suicide or my brother committed suicide or, you know, my brother died young. We all see the face of God. 
Um, uh, and uh, I, I truly believe that. And, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask a question. And and if you, but how do you reconcile with what's say like Turkey? Okay, you've got mm. fifty thousand people mm. that have died. That is that. I mean, that that is a tragedy beyond tragedy. And I suppose some people listening say, well, if there was a god, how how do these tragedies happen? Okay. Sorry, Ray, no, but no, I thought no, I'd no, ask. No, that's, well, because it's, it's if people can't test my faith and my belief, then there's something wrong. It's a bit like abseiling. If you ain't going to test the ropes beforehand, you're not going to abseil, you know no. what I'm saying? So, I, and I don't have a problem. Part of me says it's the mystery of faith. I do not know. And, and if I knew, I'd write a book about it, trust me. And if you look around the study here, there's quite a lot of books. There are, can I just say for anyone listening, Ray is probably one of the most well-read persons that I've met in recent time. Everyone else has a Kindle, but... Uh, yeah, well, I, I love, but, 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 what, but, what, but what I'm saying is I don't know the answer. You know, we, the, no. the, faith is a mystery, and that means that to believe in that hope, hope of the afterlife or whatever, you, you've, got to, you've got to accept the mystery. But I don't believe in a God who is like a watchmaker, who makes the watch or the clock and then every couple of days come back and resets, or the piano tuner who comes back and retunes your piano. I don't believe in a God like that. I believe in a God that, that wants to love us and wants to have a relationship with us. And that relationship obviously is, is primarily through heart uh, and, 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 and worship. But I don't believe God makes um, earthquakes either. If you think of what we've done in nature, to our planet, we need to really breathe in and take a, a thought about it. And whether you're polluting central London so that a young kid dies of of pollution, or whether you you know there's a massive earthquake and people die because you built a building that not only can't stand earthquakes, it's built it's substandard. Yeah. Well, if you look at Japan, they, they have earthquakes; their buildings survive. So, so whatever it is, it's man doing it. It's man doing it. You know, so we know there's going to be earthquakes. We know there's going to be floods. But if you build in these places where there will be floods, you'll get it. Now, so I don't believe in a God that's going to go, oh, hang on, hang on. Um, Ray, Ray might be, he's got a heart condition, so he might die two, die two years earlier. I'll go and sort out his heart. I don't believe that. But what I do believe is that there are, there are things that man does, fallen man, if you like, mm. that causes pain. What I truly believe is that... Um, we we all have a destiny, whatever that is. I, you know, I sometimes ask myself, I honestly ask myself, how comes Maurice Brazier died and I didn't? Oh, I was going to come on to that. How, yeah. how comes you know, you know, Pete Walker? How comes he's died and I didn't? Yeah. Now I don't think for one minute God's kept me alive for a reason. Some of the running might have helped, but we've all got a destiny. We've all got a lifespan. You know, the the, yeah. the prophet says, the Psalms say, you, you, you know, God, you knew me in in the womb and you had a plan for me. What I do believe is. God created the earth. You might call it Big Bang. You can no more prove scientifically what happened than I can prove it. No. But my faith tells me God created the earth, and then he gave us control of it. How we deal with it is up to him. So faith is as much an environmental climate issue as it is baptisms and weddings and funerals. Yeah. You know, it's it's what we do with it. Now, I keep bees. I've kept you bees do. for a long time. There's no, there's no pollution in my garden, and luckily the farmers don't pollute nearby. But 
what are we, you know, part of our faith should be, what are we doing to this very planet I agree. that I believe God gave me, God gave us? What are we doing to it? In so, such a short space of time, we, we, we're systematically destroying what we've got around us in such a short space of time. It's unbelievable. And, and, the, and the other question you ask yourself, and it's way beyond my brain power, is, why do good, why do bad things happen to good people? Mm. You know, why, why does the good guy die at twenty, or the or the child die at nine months? I don't know. No. And in my head, and I, I sort of I prayed and thought about this. It's a bit like if if you were seeing a um, a, a tapestry. You know, on the, if you look at a tapestry, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Intricate work. You turn the tapestry around. It's shoddy. It's it's not not you know. There's bits hanging out, etc. And I think we're the other side of the tapestry. We're looking at life at the back of the tapestry. When we when we when we go home, we go back to when we die and go back to heaven. We see the front of the tapestry. So I, I don't know what the answer is because no. I don't understand the back of the tapestry. But you've I mean you've answered that really nicely. The um, we only have to look at what the, the COVID effect where we had fewer aircraft mm. in the sky and mm. how the the, the mm. planet. Mended itself. Yeah, it did. It started to self repair. Look at that window there. Look at the bird feeders on hanging from my yep. window. Every morning, birds are down. Yeah, because they know it's where they feed. Yeah, we've got a pond. They come down. We've got water features. Nature will reclaim it. As soon as I said we're going to keep bees, I get all sorts of bees. Not just honeybees. Get all sorts of bees. Suddenly, I'm I'm, I'm seeing plants grow, and I think, well, how did that work? I didn't plant that. Well, the birds bought it. Yeah. So here's here's Berman's theory on evolution. If you've got ten minutes, oh, no, listen, no, no, the, no. the floor is yours. Sir. Well, no, and, and I can't. And this is flippant, but I believe God made the earth. Then evolution took over. I made this garden. This garden wasn't what it was, and and it's great. And in the summer, it's yes. beautiful. But nature's taken over. Nature takes over. It's what nature does. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, so I don't have the answer as to why things happen, but I do have an answer that says, you know, man should look at themselves for what they're doing, you know, um, and uh, there's no easy answer to it. But God gave us the planet to look after. Our job is to care for it. Whether you're a Christian or not, doesn't care. You've got to care for the planet. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you talk to children, you know, we've got a lovely, beautiful little uh, primary school, which is a Church of England school, and they come to the church and I go in there. Kids get it, trust me. Seven, eight-year-olds, they understand the climate. They know what we're doing. Yeah, they do. They get it completely. Yeah. You know, um, and they ask me the same questions. I I, I can imagine. Well, I am a seven-year-old inside, mate. (laughs) Yeah. How did you become an apiarist? I mean, keeping bees, is. I I think that's fantastic. That's something I I would love to do. Well, I I used to say, um, Vicky and I have been together nearly 40 years, and I used to say to her, there's two things I want to do before I die. Keep a pig. And keep bees. I've no idea why. Now I think that was one of the calling moments. Because when I was going through the um, interviews for Nation, one of the questions, different panels, it goes on for days, different panels, and one of them said to me, "So, so when do you uh, when, when do you speak to God? When do, you know, when do, what's your prayer life like?" You know, it was one of those questions. And I think he thought I was going to say, well, because when I'm in the cathedral or, you know, when I'm in blah, 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 you know. I said, actually, it's probably when I'm in the garden and when I'm with the bees because you're thinking of nothing else but the bees. Mm. The bees totally occupy your mind. And, of course, then you reflect that and you think, you know, those early monks, they understood. No wonder, one, no wonder beekeeping was a thing with the monasteries. Yeah. 
They understood. They understood the rhythms of, of life. Now, it could be I've always wanted to keep bees and now I get it. I go, oh, maybe God's here today because I'm keeping the bees or whatever. But maybe when I was thinking all those years ago, even as a DS, one of these days I'm going to keep bees. That was an all that was a curly a calling moment that I wasn't listening. So I keep so I decided to keep bees. So I, I did a course as you do, got some bees, and of course, whatever they teach you on a course, it's a bit like the detective training course. That's not what what's not happens in reality. So I've had swarms, and of course, here they call me the beekeeping vicar and all this sort of stuff, you know. And I, you know, and we do get a lot of honey. Um uh, Lovely. But when you're with the bees, you know, when you're there, because they, they, they can't hear. Bees don't have feet. Bees haven't got ears. Have you ever seen a bee wearing glasses? No, because <laughs> they haven't got any ears. Bum, bum. But bees, bees are the most fascinating things. How do they know that when the queens needs to be replaced? How do they know how many worker bees they need? How many guard bees they need? How many drones they need? How do they know? How do they know? And they breed. But they know. Yeah. How do they? How do they understand that if one stings you, the others have got to get stuck in? You know. How do they know? But we're back to community. Absolutely. We're back yeah. to that community. No spirit. wonder the Victorian. If you look at most Lloyd's banks, they've got a a, a scap or a bee sign. Yeah. You know the Victorians understood this, um, and so when I'm in the garden, and this can sound really ridiculous, one of the things that, that priests. Um, should and, and often do is a thing called the daily offices. It goes back to the um, Benedictine monks where prayer is like work. So if you're in the monastery, praying as well as, you know, growing food or looking after the bees or whatever is work. And you'd have morning prayer. So the first things that come out of your mouth are praising God, lunchtime, evening, and what's called compline, last thing at night. Uh, now, of course, Back in the day when, like, the village Bobby was in the village, well, every parish had a, a, a paid vicar. So they would do morning prayer and evening prayer, etc. I, I still do that. I don't go every day because, you know, I can't. But everything in the morning, my dog, one of our two dogs, Matty, wakes me up at 7 o'clock every morning, jumps on the bed. I don't know how she's learned to tell the time, but 7 o'clock <laughs> in the morning. I get out of bed. I hit the coffee pot. First mug of coffee. I'm in my gym jams and dressing gown. First mug of coffee, Matt and I go out in the garden. And we get, there's an area over there, I call it the dry garden, but it's a bench in that. And, you know, unless it's really throwing it down, I sit down and Matty jumps up on the bed and Matty and I talk to God, you know. And I go, okay, what's going on today? What's going to happen? You know, what's, what's happening? And we might pray, might say, you know, could you help out so-and-so with that, Lord? Could you do something about that? But Matty and I do morning prayer together. Matty understands. Totally unconditional love for, oh. for, 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 for we, we, you know, when you get a pet, total unconditional love. I'm with you. The same unconditional love that God gives you. All you've got to do, uh, some Fran I think it's Francis, St. Francis said, we're made in the image of God. That's what they say. By that, you know, I dread to think God looks like me. <laughs> or but, me. But until, and we have a hole in our heart, until God's in there and fills it up, you will never find peace. And that's what happened to me in that church at Tiptree. Now, I can't prove it to you. I can't show you videos or CCTV or witnesses. But trust me, it happened. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. Mm. You've just got to open up your heart. Um, and, and, and the great things that have occurred since then, the wonderful things that still happen to me, 
are God-given. There's no doubt about that. No, they're not coincidence. They're God-given. But you, you're well-travelled, you're well-read. Um, Been all around the world twice, three times. You know, there's a map there with all the pins. Been everywhere, done everything yeah. I want to do. Uh, the only thing I haven't done is climb Mount Everest. I'd like to have done that. But I've done everything in my life I want to do. I do not need to be an ordained priest. <laughs> I do not need it. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's... Vicky bought this for me a couple of years ago. It's a, a, it's a, it's a pen and ink drawing in, uh, of old Jerusalem. Right. Uh, this was after I was ordained. And, I, and, and, I'm, and, and what you're standing here is a Mount of Olives looking out into the old city and the, Mount, you know, yep. the dome and et cetera. I was there last November. Right. I, went, I went there to the Holy Land. for, for um, And I stood there, and, and when you, you go to um, – uh, it's called the Synagogue Church. It's where the Crusaders built a church and then they un- unearthed that and then they unearthed the 4th century and then they un- unearthed a 1st century synagogue in Nazareth where Christ would have stood wow. and read the scrolls of Isaiah. Stand there. Now, they're unearthing stuff that people have decried over the years saying, oh, the, the Bible says this, it's not there. Then they're finding that stuff. Yeah. So science is catching up with the Bible. Yeah. It, it really is. So, um, and and it's an amazing place, you know. Oh yeah, I'd like, I'd love to go there. I had the opportunity to go to Syria long well, before, yeah, the, and we yeah. didn't take the opportunity. And I wish we had because there's so many artifacts and history there that has since been destroyed, sadly. But but I, I get why the Bible come from there. Yeah, you go there, you understand it. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway. It make yeah no, it, it all makes sense. Yeah, and because you're you're up at the base, you're up at RF Lake and Heath. Mm. Um, Active member up there. How did you get involved in that? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, three years ago, I mean, I truly was getting under Victoria's feet. I graduated. I've done done that. I was a lay minister, um, uh, being being sort of gently pushed forward, gently to become ordained under this new process, which I think the, the whole ch- the Church of England, I think, has adopted. I'm not sure, but I think they have. Anyway, so uh, Victoria, my wife, came in one day and said there's a job here for you. And I said, I don't want a job. <laughs> 40% tax, remember? Yeah. Bless them. Thank you, Mr. Treasurer. Anyway, um, and and it was it, the job didn't exist. It was it was a new post. Working with the air traffic controllers, the radar guys, the guys who do the runway, you know. And I went for the interview and um, and I thought, you know, sent in the CV. Uh, in fact, I think Vicky sent the CV in, actually. Uh, and I go for the interview. And what I realised was I missed, and I, when I, I, I'm going to use the term brotherhood, but I mean brother sisterhood. I realised I was missing it. You know that 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 feeling that you're around people who think the same as you. Yeah, and and all that goes with that. So I went for the interview and I got the job, which was amazing. Uh, and I, I never forget. They said, um, "Well, it'll be three months before you get clearance." And I said, "No, it won't." <laughs> Six weeks later, I'm on the base. Yeah. So I work with the air traffic controllers. I'm like I'm their admin guy. That's how I explain it. Um, I love them. I truly love them. They're most amazing people. And here's the thing: people see Americans when they're out in this, you know, when they round here. What they don't see is every three years, give or take, they up sticks and move somewhere else in the world. Yeah. Now that may sound exotic until you've got kids. Until you're, you know, six weeks or seven weeks before they're going to go, their entire home is boxed up and put on a boat. So they live with temporary furniture at Christmas. Yeah. And then they move somewhere else. And six weeks after they've been there or two months, their furniture arrives. Yeah. Um, So, uh, 
And I've worked with these guys now. You know, there's been a complete, exception one guy, there's been a complete change round of, of the whole flight. The whole, uh, and I've worked, and I've worked with pilots, you know, super guys. And it's the 48th fighter wing, isn't 48th it? 48th fighter wing. There's Our group is made up. Well, I work with the 48th OSS, the Operational Support Squad. So these are the guys that sort out the ammunition, the pack, the parachutes, you know, do all that stuff, yeah. the, the intel side, and I work on the bit that keeps, you know, the, the runway and and the, the tower and and the, and the it's called radar approach and control, and and another group called um, who makes sure all the kit works, you know, the yeah. generators and stuff, um, and uh, and then they're they're part of a of of, of the um, and our boss or two bosses, two of my bosses, both colonels, are pilots. And I've chatted to I've got to know him well now, uh, and and the previous bosses. So this is my third colonel in three years. Again, shows you the turnover. And they're all the same. And I actually said to them once, because they knew what I did for a living. They, they know yeah, much yeah. of us. And I said, I've, I know it's a, 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 like a similar, a correlation between pilots and detectives. And here's what I said to them. The detectives I work with would put themselves in harm's way they weren't arrogant, but they had to be self-assured because they're going to go through the door. They're not. We're going to find blah 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 blah. We all know that, and it's not just detectives. You know, cops. But, yeah, but yeah. I'm talking about detectives. Pilots, when they take off, if they don't do their job right, they don't come home. <laughs> I can't think of a more of a, you know a great incentive to be on the button. Oh, absolutely. And they are. They're not arrogant. They're amazing people. Right down to the newest. We get, we get airmen because men and women are all called airmen. Airmen come, they're 19, straight out of America, yeah. you know, and they come to England and, you know, everything's different. The roads are different. And they're amazing people. Yeah, they are. And, and more importantly, their families are amazing. Oh, yeah. Because their families support them so they can do the job. And every three years or four years or two years, and then they're here for three years, then they get deployed somewhere in the world. And they are, every time those jets take off, man, I'm listening to the sound of freedom. Well, of course, where I am, they take off like a couple of hundred yards away. Yeah. It's great fun. Oh, you know? I'd lo- I would love that. Oh, I, I, and uh, so I'm, I'm greatly honoured. They, they, they've been kind enough to continue to pay me. They, they, they reward me occasionally. They, they you know, make a fuss of me. Uh, but since joining, of course, I've become ordained. They're very happy with that. And I've then been asked to do baptisms. I've married them. Uh, luckily, in touch with no funerals. Um, it, you know, they'll come in and sit and chat with me and say, I've got a problem. But, but faith, I think the American, so, or the, the military in general, because the British military have chaplains, and I think faith within the services is still very prominent. Yeah, yeah. Faith, but where you spot is their names. I've forgotten how many, you know, Josephs and Zacharias I've booked in. Yeah. But but it, it's 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 not just faith, you know. They 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 they'll come and ask me, you know, they'll say, you know, I want to take my girlfriend or wife out for a special where shall I go? And of course I say, well, Common Garden's really nice this yeah. time of year, you know, sort of thing. Um but but again, I just I'm in a position where and I've taken pals on the base, you know, I've taken ex colleagues on the base. But I'm in a position where I'm yet again working with the most amazing people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had to, a bit like when I went to the Met from Essex, I had to learn, how, first of all, the, the computer systems are not what I'm used to because uh, yeah, academically it's always been um, Apple Mac, you know. 
So I had to learn their systems. They they speak a different language. They yeah. speak all the time in different words. You know, they speak American. So half the time I'm having to correct them about their language. <laughs> you know, I've I've after three years I've just about stopped calling them colonials. You know, <laughs> but they they're great people. They truly are great people, and they yeah. they really know how to live. And um, and and I've made some amazing friends there. So and how you know I keep saying well maybe I should retire again. Oh, you know, no, why would you? Know? you? But. Um, they, they, you know, uh, it's. I'm in a wonderful position. I interviewed a, a guy called Michael Sutton, who was the wing commander for the Typhoons. Oh yeah, and the stuff that they go through as as pilots, mm. and the stuff that the support crew go through, because actually, the team ethos. If the engineers got it wrong, oh yeah, the, the, the whole th- the whole thing falls apart if one person. One gets One of it the wrong. great values, you know, I'm the admin guy. I, you know, I. They give me some budgets and some buildings to look after and stuff like that. But I remember two colonels ago. He's, he's now a full. He was lieutenant colonel. He's now a full colonel back in the states. He said to me, "He said, Mr. Ray, they call me Mr. Ray. Mr. Ray, if you don't get your job right, we don't fly the planes. Mm. That's how that's how they see the role yeah. of the support staff. Now, I don't remember anybody talking to a civilian in the police like that. You know, it, it, he actually came in one day and said, or he texted me at home." Uh, and he said, can I come see you at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning? Or 8 o'clock, whatever it was. He was flying. So came in, he shut the door, he said, I need to apologise. What for? Colonel so-and-so said something the other day, and you know, I, I want to apologise on behalf. I said, mate, I've got thick skin. I didn't even know he'd said it, you know. And it, you know, and it was not, wasn't directed at me. No, no, we cert, you know, we value you so much. Mate, that is worth it. I'd go there if they didn't pay me. Yeah. Don't tell them that. <laughs> no, no, they don't. They don't. And it's and it's phenomenal. And that that spirit is it's family more than even yeah. esprit de corps. So again, I'm in that joy of of working alongside people like that. Um, and I've been there three years now, so I now know the process. But there's five thousand people work on that. Oh, place. no, it's huge. They've got everything. They've got a cinema, a school, yeah. a hospital. It's just a fantastic place. Taco Bell. Yeah, yeah, they've got- yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we haven't got an IHOP. I'm, I think I'm right to the president asking yeah, to send me an IHOP. So it's a great place and great people. Paul, so, I, I'm a lucky man. I really am. So what's the future for Ray Berman then? Oh, I, I do not know. I, um, I, I, I think you get to a stage where um, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to be able to do more of um, discipleship. By that, you know, I, I'm. I'm I can remember leaving Belgravia, and as you went past the Apollo Theatre, there's a, a small statue. It's called it's a it's a, a small version of Big Ben, right. and everyone referred to it as "I'll see you at Little Ben." Everyone referred to it as Little Ben. And I used to go past, and there'd be a guy there with a megaphone, repent now, and you know, with his Bible on that, and I remember thinking, "Really, mate, you know, get a life." That's not what I'm talking about. Because if I bring anybody to faith, and I'm lucky enough to have done that a few times. It's a one-to-one relationship. And the reason I say that is when Christ walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, he, he didn't have a megaphone. He didn't do big, massive stadiums. Nothing wrong with that. He spoke one-to-one to people. Mm. It was that one-to-one. He was a teacher. So um, I'd like to do far more study of the Bible. I mean, I just don't know enough of the Bible, you know. Uh I I think there's I've been here long enough now in this place for 
people to recognize me and you know and, and you will you get in a phone call and email you know almost like the phone call i had with martin fletcher all those years ago yeah. you get the phone call you know would you baptize my baby you know why is that or i was baptized there grandma was baptized there great grandma you know, grandma got married there i got married there you know you buried dad last year you know, I'm in that position. And, mm. and if it, if that isn't what I joined the police service for, I don't know, you know. Yeah. So I, I'm able to help people and walk with people. So while I'm healthy, you know, while, while I can still do it, um, I'm going to continue to do it. Um, uh, we have no intention to move. We're very happy here. Um, uh, I, and I can do it because I have the support around me all the time. Yeah. You know, uh, a bit like, you know, the queen bee can do what she does because the whole hive work for you know i've got people that will just go out of their way to help me um you know covid was a really bad time for the yeah. church you know for, for, for not just for people but for the church you know we closed churches never archbishop if you're listening never will i close a church again you know when my churches were locked you could go to the garden center that's never going to happen again you can sack me the churches are always going to be open Good. because people needed them. Yeah, they did. When, when Her Majesty died, that whole time of mourning, people just came to the church yeah. just to sit there. Yeah. You know, we had two services, particular two services, and the one the Sunday before the funeral on the Monday. People were coming to church wearing black, Paul. Yeah. They needed the church. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, um, so, and yeah. I, I know we've had this conversation, and, and but – I, I get frustrated when I read things by the, the ONS to say that you know, as a as a Christian society, we're on decline. I don't believe it. I, I believe that we've still got a a core of Christians in in the UK. They and I don't go to church, but do I believe in a great? Yeah, of course I do. But we have still got people here, and I think they probably ask the wrong people. And I get really frustrated with some of my friends who. Um, how do I say it politely? They berate other faiths who have got real cohesion within their community. No, the, the Muslims no. every Friday they'll Absolutely. meet. Yet we, as a, as a, and you're lucky, you've got a lovely congregation. But we, as a society, we've neglected our churches, and then we complain mm. that we haven't got that structure within our within our lives. And the the, the reason the reason uh, the, the reason I say to people, look. Why don't you come along on a Sunday morning? You're going to join a group of people who worship together. This is a thing. It's you know, it's like you know, you go to a football match or you no, kind of church not like football. Match, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or, or, or whatever. <coughs> you know, NFL. Everybody goes mad. You know, there's something about worshiping together. Now, okay, we stand up and we sing hymns, and they're not always the most modern, and that's great, you know. But we worship, and someone like me stands out the front, and then we do this thing called communion. We're communing with each other and with God. And I believe Christ is there with us, you know, because he said, do this and remember me when you do it. Now that, you can't get that anywhere else. You can't get that at the Rotary Club. You, you know, and I'm a very dedicated Rotarian. You can't get that at the WI. You can't get it anywhere other than church. So, yes, be a Christian, but sometimes you've got to think there's going to be a time when I need to worship. But more importantly, more importantly, I don't care if you come to church. I don't care if you call yourself a Christian on the return. What I care about is you open your heart and make Jesus your saviour and say, Jesus, I want you to enter my heart and I want you to change me. 
because I'm a bad person. Or I'm a good person, I want you to make me better. Yeah. You know, and that's what, you know, if you say to someone now, you know, if you say to a teenager, what's sin? They'll say it's eating a cream cake. That's what sin is because, like, it's naughty, it's eating a cream cake. No, sin is polluting the atmosphere. Sin is is, is crippling it. You know, sin is, is not recycling, actually. So what I'm saying to these people is I don't care where you go to church. I don't care what you put on the return. What I say to you is think about what's happened to me and have a little bit of that. Just think about it. You know, it's not going to stop you doing whatever you do now. It's not going to stop you having a drink. It's not going to stop you smoking or whatever you do now. What it will do, though, is it will give you that peace that only Christ, who is our saviour, can give you. I told you I'd become evangelistic, you know, but it is, it's true. Yeah. It's true, Paul. Yeah. Well, Ray, it's been absolutely captivating, yeah. and I'm, I'm really, really grateful for your time. It's lovely to catch up with you after all these years. But before I finish, I have to ask you, is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct in this no, interview? No, no. It sounds like a, a, an old interview. You know? <laughs> no, I, I, I speak from the heart. Uh, I don't speak on behalf of the church or the Church of England or any diocese. I speak as someone who has been touched by God, I believe, who's been called by God, and will worship God. Um, and and if you remember, um, God said to Abraham, "I'm going to make as many worshippers of you. Uh, you know, uh, you call as many worshippers to worship God as there are stars in the sky. There are billions of people in this world that worship God. I'm one of them. Um, and here's the thing: I die, and there's no heaven. So I've had a fun time." And I died, there is a heaven, yee-haw, you know. Uh, my wife will go to heaven before me because she's a better person. She may not come to church on a Sunday. She may not read the Bible. She may not understand theology. That isn't the relationship. It's a one-to-one -one relationship with God. Um, and uh, those that are listening just want to reflect on that because it will change you. Right, it's been absolutely yeah, captivating. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank yeah. you so much. I'm really grateful. Thank, thank you. you